Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2.12, Kanishka and his three friends. It's the 180s AD. In China, the old Han dynasty has splintered into the three kingdoms. In the Mediterranean, Emperor Marcus Aurelius has died and his stupid and cruel son Commodus has taken the throne of Rome. And in India, Kanishka, the great cushion, has conquered northern India and rules there supreme. In his official art, Kanishka was merely a conquering king. The statue of Kanishka portrays him this way, legs standing strong apart, arm-grasping sword, ready to conquer the world. Well, don't always believe the official story. On his statue, Kanishka's hand may have been permanently carved around his sword, but especially towards the second half of his life, Kanishka's real hand was probably just as often stroking his chin in thought, pondering whether he was really a good man, and often coming to the conclusion that the best of us come to, that no, he was not a good man after all. And it was our city, Pataliputra, that was partly responsible for this turn in Kanishka's life. This week, we look at why Kanishka started to wonder whether he was a good man. We look at his three closest friends, the poet monk, the doctor, and the prime minister. Three friends who followed him through invasion after invasion, picking away at his conscience, urging him to be wise and to be a good king. Until finally, with one invasion too many, Kanishka made the wrong choice and met a grisly death. Here we go. King Kanishka had always had three friends around him. The poet monk Ashvagosha, the doctor Charaka, and his prime minister Matara. Whenever Kanishka was on a journey, you could find the three friends there too, to his right and his left. And whenever Kanishka was resting, you could still find the friends there too, to the right and to the left. If Kanishka relied on his friends even more than a usual emperor would, that's because Kanishka was an especially powerful emperor. He ruled supreme. He was, after all, supposed to be a living god. He called himself the son of God, and his image was in the statue houses alongside the other gods. Only Kanishka's statue was a little bit larger, as if to say, I'm greater than the other more traditional gods. So naturally, Kanishka had even more power than an emperor usually would. Actually, to see just how much power was concentrated in Kanishka, let's think back to the emperors of India before him. The Mauryan emperors, for example, a few centuries before. The Mauryan emperors didn't consider themselves gods, and they didn't rule supreme like gods either. There were checks and balances on a Mauryan emperor's power. First, there was a council of 500 ministers. Now, in theory, the council wasn't really a check on the Mauryan emperor. They simply did what the emperor wished. But in practice, they interpreted the emperor's commands in ways which avoided the worst excesses and kept sane and sensible policies in play. And in addition to the Council of 500, there was a smaller council the king consulted with, stocked with the most powerful of the ministers. These guys didn't derive their power from the emperor. In fact, sometimes they condemned the emperor in public. 
And once or twice, these ministers were so powerful that they took all the emperor's power away from him. So if you're a Mauryan emperor, you can't just do whatever you want. You have to pass your policies through a series of ministers. You have to persuade them that your policies are good enough to enact. Compared to the Mauryans, Kanishka ruled supreme. If you're a god, then having to pass your ideas for policy through a network of openly critical ministers is hardly appropriate. And there's no trace of any such body of advisers for the Kushan kings. All power was concentrated in the Kushan emperor. But any successful king needs a good advisor. So Kanishka had to rely on his three close friends for advisers, the poet monk, the doctor and the prime minister. And those three were treated with extreme respect. Unlike the advisers of old, they got their power from being close to the emperor, so they wouldn't openly defy him or take his power away. But unlike almost anyone else in the Christian kingdom, they were free to speak to the emperor openly, friend to friend rather than subject to king. It's the words of the three friends that drive the stories in today's podcasts, and it all starts with the words of Ashvagosa, the poet monk. There's an old Indian story about Ashvagosha, uh, now lost to us in the Indian original, but preserved in Chinese texts. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was an ascetic who troubled the local Buddhist community. You see, in the local Buddhist community had a bell and they used to ring the bell uh, to get people to come and to donate food so they wouldn't have to go out and meet all the people and knock on every door. But the ascetic came along and he put a stop to all of that. He stormed one day into the Buddhist monastery and he challenged a monk to debate. Some nuanced point of doctrine was the, was the issue they discussed. The monk made a claim, something like, why there is no self yet people can gain merit. The ascetic argued that that claim was wrong and everyone agreed that the ascetic's argument was better. The ascetic won the debate easily. So he challenged the next monk, and again they talked about some tiny nuanced point of doctrine, but still the ascetic knew exactly what he was talking about. He proved the monk wrong, and the ascetic won the debate again. And exactly the same with the next monk, and the next monk, and the next monk, until the ascetic had humiliated all of the Buddhist community in debate. Then, with the mentally bruised monks lying about, the ascetic commanded them not to ring the alms bell any longer. It was annoying him and they should be too ashamed to ask the people for food. With that, the ascetic had had his fun and he went back to the forest. Well, one day, a frail old Buddhist monk was travelling around in the area and he happened to stay the night at that particular monastery. When afternoon came and no one had rung the alms bell to ask for food. The frail old monk got curious. He grabbed some passing monks and he said, why haven't you rung the alms bell? So the monks told him about the ascetic who'd come in and beaten them all at argument and threatened them and told them not to ring the alms bell any longer. But the frail old monk wasn't having any of that nonsense. He said, go ahead, ring the alms bell whenever you like. What if the ascetic turns up? The other monks asked. Don't worry about that. I'll deal with him. 
So, after plucking up some courage, the monks rung the bell. And sure enough, the ascetic came bounding out of the forest, demanding to know why they had rung the alms bell. Hadn't he already beaten them? Hadn't he already told them to stop all that nonsense? The monk scrambled to desert, to divert the ascetic's attention. It's the frail old monk. He's, he's come here. He's new. He's upstairs. Hang on, hang on. We'll, we'll go and get him. So they went to go and get the frail old monk. And the frail old monk trumbled down the stairs. Now, when the ascetic saw the frail old monk, he didn't think very much of him. He didn't look like a world-class debater. There was no killer instinct in the eyes, no sharp look about him. The frail old monk came down and the two had a chat and they agreed to meet in seven days' time for a grand debate that would settle it once and for all. So the frail old monk trumbled back up the stairs and the ascetic went back out to the forest. And the frail old monk began to meditate, wondering how he was going to beat the ascetic. He sat there meditating for the whole week, the whole seven days. And on the morning of the seventh day, a broad smile spread over the frail monk's face. He finally saw how to win the debate. And not a moment too soon, because it was seven days later, this was the morning of the debate. So the frail old monk came back down the stairs to where the debate was to be held. And he went and he sat in the place that had been prepared for him. And he sat bolt upright, full of energy, smiling serenely to himself at perfect peace. Well, at the appointed time, the ascetic came out of the forest and he liked what he saw. The frail old man he'd met last week had been transformed. He'd become a sprightly, energetic-looking monk, a true debater ready for a fight. There are some preliminaries to get through before the debate. What were the stakes? The ascetic thought that the loser should have their tongue cut out. The frail old man thought that was going a little bit too far, but he suggested that the loser should become the winner's disciple. That was agreed upon. So who was going to go first in the debate? The ascetic wanted to go first, but the frail old man pointed out that he was the older one, and in any case, he had turned up first, he'd been sitting there since early morning. So it was agreed again, the frail old monk would go first. And like with all of these debates, he had put forward a thesis and the ascetic would then have to disprove it. Finally, everything was ready and the debate begun. The frail old monk opened his mouth and spoke his thesis. And he simply said this. We should make the country be at peace, the great king enjoy a long life, and the land rich and happy without any calamity. Well, it's quite hard to argue with any of that. And the ascetic wasn't expecting it. The ascetic is expecting some tiny point of doctrine, just like he'd debated with all of the other monks. The ascetic was stumped. His mouth moved up and down a few times, but no words came out. He had nothing to say. He had lost, and people began to cheer. The frail monk was the victor. And as per the agreement, the ascetic now became his disciple. The ascetic was more than a little bit frustrated, ticked off with himself. How had he been beaten by such a simple ruse? And this frail old man, what could he learn from him? Well, the frail old man was not what he appeared to be. 
He was a very powerful Buddhist monk, widely travelled and deeply learned. And he quietly took his new disciple aside and he, he showed to him, he demonstrated to him his full power. And the ascetic committed himself to learning everything he could from the old man. The ascetic was, of course, our friend Ashvagosha. We already know the next part of Ashvagosha's story. He was in Pataliputra when Kanishka and his army approached. Kanishka demanded a tribute of 900,000 gold pieces. Pataliputra didn't have 900,000 gold pieces, so instead they sent the Buddha's offering bowl, price 300,000 gold pieces. A kind-hearted cockerel who didn't drink water with insects in it, price also 300,000 gold pieces. And finally, a monk, price rather suspiciously, also 300,000 gold pieces. The monk was Ashvagosha, but he wasn't called that yet. He was just a monk. Kanushka accepted these as just payments. This is the right price according to him. But Kanishka's army were not so persuaded. Well, a monk for 300,000 gold pieces. Are you kidding me? There's monks everywhere here. Supply and demand, Kanishka. Come on, think about it. But Kanishka had sensed already that the monk that he had been given was a great man, charismatic, powerful in debate, and deeply learned. He just needed to convince his army. So Kanishka, in order to convince his army that the monk was so powerful, did this. He got them to starve the horses for six days, not give them any food. And on the seventh day, he arranged all of the horses in a line. And then he gathered all of his army facing the horses. And he got the monk he'd been given, who was worth 300,000 gold pieces, to start preaching. And as the monk preached, bowls were put in front of the starving horses and the bowls were filled with treats that horses love, corn and betel nut. But the horses didn't eat. They were too busy paying attention to the monk. That's how good he was. That's how charismatic he was. And the army saw this and they also saw how charismatic the monk was. And they were persuaded that, yes, this is a monk worth 300,000 gold pieces. The monk was accepted by the people and the king alike. And he earned his name Asvagosha, which means cry of the horse. Almost immediately, Asvagosha and Kanishka became firm friends. And Ashvagosha would be alongside the king throughout the rest of his campaigns in India and elsewhere. And there were plenty of campaigns to be part of. There was the Ganges campaign, of course. That was the campaign uh, where uh, Ashvagosha had met the king at Pataliputra. The march of the Kushan army down the Ganges Valley, conquering all of the major cities uh, from Varanasi to Pataliputra, all the way down, probably, to where the Ganges meets the sea. And also Kalinga, so Bengal and Kalinga. A long way, conquering many, many kingdoms. But there were other campaigns going on. In fact, there were other campaigns going on at exactly the same time. In the third year of Kanishka's reign, around the same time he was conquering Varanasi on the Ganges, his armies were also conquering Ujjain. Ujjain was the city a little further to the south, the city where Ashoka had cut his teeth. We've heard about it a few times. It was also the capital of some of the Deccan empires. 
So there was a push further south by Kanishka. And down south, there was another great dynasty, an Indian dynasty, the comeback kings of India, the Satavahanas. The golden age of the Satavahanas had passed already. We talked about it in an earlier episode. That was the golden age where they'd taken back almost all of the Deccan Plateau. But now they had retreated. They were probably, though, still a very sizable kingdom. And they were probably still the people that you had to wrestle with if you wanted to take control of the eastern Deccan Plateau. And Kanishka was always up for a wrestle. Now we know almost nothing about Kanishka's war against the Satavahanas. It's not clear even whether he succeeded or even whether he tried that hard. But there's a fun story about why he waged the war. The story goes that Kanishka was given a gift of two fine fabrics and he kept one for himself and he gave one to his wife. Well, one day his wife came into court and she was wearing a fine fabric, but it had a big hand print in bright saffron colour right there on her breast. That's a bit much, thought Kanishka, and he demanded to know exactly what she was up to. She protested, no, it's not my idea at all. It's your idea. After all, this is the fine cloth that you gave me. Kanishka was not satisfied. He did not let the issue drop. He sent his men out to find the treasurer and asked the treasurer if what the queen said was true. And the treasurer said, yes, of course, that's the, the fine cloth that you gave her. And the treasurer added, these fine cloths always carry that mark, the handprint. Kanishka still didn't let it drop, so he sent his men to go and find the merchant who had sold the cloth for the gift, and drag the merchant before the emperor's wrath. The merchant was dragged before the emperor's wrath, and he explained that yes, this cloth always carried the mark. And, the merchant added, that's because it's from the king of the Satavahanas. The merchant explained how the king of the Satavahanas gathered in this really fine cloth as a form of tax. And he got his taxman every year to stack the finest cloth in a big pile, one on top of the other. And then the king of the Satavahanas uh, put his hand in saffron milk to make it bright orange and slapped his hand down on top of the big pile of cloth. And such was the king's power and such was the king's strength of his slap that the saffron colour penetrated right through the pile to the very bottom. So it covered, uh, made a mark on all of the different sheets, each of them imprinted with the hand of the Satavahana king. What's more, such was the king's magic that the hand always appeared exactly where he wanted it to, no matter how you wore the cloth. If a woman wore the cloth, the hand always appeared on their breast. If a man wore the cloth, the hand always appeared on his back. Or at least, that's what the merchant said. King Kanishka, as you're guessing by now, was a little bit sceptical, and he still wasn't convinced, so he got the members of his court to try the cloth on. And what the merchant said turned out to be exactly true. Any woman who wore the cloth, the handprint always appeared right there on their breast. Any man who wore the cloth, the handprint always appeared right there on his back. Kanishka was most displeased. He had got to the bottom of all of this 
And now was the time to act. He wasn't going to have any filthy hand of a foreign king on his wife's dress. It was time to assemble the army and invade the Satavahanas. And, according to the story at least, that's exactly what Kanishka did. And India wasn't even the most important focus of Kanishka's conquests. The heart of the Kushan Empire had always been outside of India in Bactria. Bactria is the place where the Kushans of old first came down off the steppe and settled in fortified cities. And this focus on Bactria remained even after all of Kanishka's invasions in India, when the majority of the empire was probably within India. Still, its beating heart was outside in Bactria. So the focus of some of Kanishka's invasions and his military actions were around Bactria rather than around his Indian holdings. For example, just to the north of Bactria were some uh, states, and these were tributary states of the Han Chinese. Now, the Han Chinese and the Kushans had once been allies in the distant past, but now they were die-hard enemies. The Han had humiliated the Kushans on the battlefield. The Kushans had sent a huge army out to destroy them, but the Han Chinese, with their smaller army, had managed to win simply by starving the Kushans out. It was a victory by logistics, and that hurt the pride. Kanishka was going to get his revenge. So he put put military pressure on these states to the north of Bactria and he managed to make them tributary states of the Kushans and make them abandon the Han Chinese. And just to make sure that the states didn't go running back to the Han Chinese for help, Kanishka kept the sons of those uh, kings um, as hostages. He kept these princes tucked away safe, uh, entirely out of reach in India and in Afghanistan. But it wasn't just to the north of Bactria. Just to the west of Bactria was a seriously formidable enemy. The great Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire, by this time, was somewhat fading. It used to have been the the big boy, a a serious threat to Rome, uh, one of the three great empires of the world. But the Romans had dealt it a huge blow. And it retreated. It was still a major player, and it was still trying to swing its weight around, trying to regain its former glory. The sources say that the ruler of Parthia was stupid and violent. And that seems to have been true because he attacked the Kushans. Bad move. If Kanishka, king of the Kushans, was good at anything, it was fighting. And he promptly invaded Parthia... We don't know many details of the invasion, but he gave them a really good thrashing. The sort of thrashing that they wouldn't easily recover from. Hundreds of men, hundreds of them, slaughtered. The military strength of Parthia ruined for a generation. And there, amongst the human wreckage, our friend the monk popped up again. Ashfur Gosha, the monk who is worth... 300,000 gold coins. And he started to nudge Kanishka to look around him. Look, look at all the men you've killed. Listen to their wailing families. Was it worth it, Kanishka? And then Ashvagosha started to really 
turn the heat on. He started to describe all the suffering that Kanishka would have to endure in his next life in order to make up for all the wrong that he had done in this one. Kanishka, said the monk, would be reborn as a fish in the great sea and the fish would have a thousand heads and the heads would be continually being cut off. And Kanishka would have to endure this suffering for hundreds of years as payback for all the men whose heads he had had cut off in this life. Scary stuff. And Kanishka was filled with remorse. He looked around and he started to see the cost of his ambition, the cost of what he'd done, and he couldn't justify it. Now, all of this sounds quite familiar. It reminds us of another king on another battlefield. Ashoka the Great on the battlefield at Kalingo and he looked around. But this is not going to be a repeat of the story of Ashoka the Great. Ashoka the Great had the integrity and the courage to change his mind, to swear never to again wage war and to stick by what he swore. Few of us achieve such things, and Kanishka certainly did not. His desire for conquests was unsatisfied. He still wanted more. And sooner or later, that desire was going to overcome the call of his conscience. His conscience had been awoken, but it hadn't won the fight yet. King Kanishka, sitting in his stronghold in Bactria, must have been very pleased with his life. Looking to the east, he'd conquered the great river Ganges all the way down to the sea. Looking to the south, he'd conquered India up onto the Deccan Plateau. And looking to the west, he dealt a huge blow to the Parthian Empire, devastating their lands and their power, and they would never recover. But one thing was missing. The northern lands remained free from his grasp. I mean, sure, there were a few tributary straits whose princes he held hostage. But how was he going to complete the set and really gain sovereignty of the whole world, north, south, east and west? Kanishka did what he always did when he had such a problem, he went and talked to his three friends, who were, as they always were, to his left and to his right. We can imagine that the monk Ashragosha strongly disapproved of the whole idea of conquering the world altogether. But the prime minister was not such a stickler, and he had a plan. Only, he told the king, never tell anyone that your plan is to conquer all of the world. That's got to remain absolutely secret. If even a single person outside of us four friends were to find out, all would be lost. Well, they started to institute the plan to conquer the whole world and they gathered the Cushion army. Not only the horse archers, the Cushions were famous for, but also the chariots, the elephants and the infantry. And they started on the march, heading in a northern direction but not telling the soldiers what the grand plan was. King Kanishka himself led the vanguard with the elephants and the horses up into the mountains and through the mountain passes. Now, if you're on an elephant, I assume that getting through a mountain pass is a tricky thing to do. Hannibal tried it in the Alps and he lost a fair few elephants. King Kanishka wasn't going to be so lucky. The elephant riders just flat refused to try and push their elephants through the pass. They'd been waging wars all over the world for Kanishka. They were tired. This was an impossible task. And frankly, they just wanted to go home. 
Kanishka was enraged with them. He shouted at them, screamed at them. He said, look, we've almost done it. There's just one more direction left. If we can only conquer the north, we'll have conquered the whole world. Oops. The secret was out. Just like the Prime Minister had warned, bad things were going to happen once the secret was out. The Prime Minister rushed to the King's side and he warned him that death approached. Now the secret was revealed. The monk Ashragosha was probably there too and probably reminded the King of the punishment that he'd faced. The 300,000 men he'd killed and the heads he'd have to have cut off in the next life to compensate for him. This was going to be bad. There are actually two different endings to this story. According to one, Kanishka desperately trying to do good works in the time that was left to him before death approached and got him. He built monasteries, he gave arms and so forth. The ministers were not persuaded that wasn't enough. He'd done so much bad, they said, that all this good even wouldn't compensate for it. But the king proved them wrong by taking a large pot, boiling some stew and throwing his royal ring in it. That somehow managed to convince the ministers that he was really a good chap, though the point is rather lost on me. The other ending is a juicier ending. Kanishka was pondering his oncoming death and thinking about Ashvagosha's words and all the men he had killed. And as he was pondering, the army started muttering to themselves. They were just so tired. And the king's appetite for conquest was never going to end until he'd conquered the whole world. He'd said that now. And we just want to go home to our families. We don't want to fight for a land we've never heard of. And even if we win, we'll just be posted as border guards months away from our families. They decided together that the king was being unreasonable. But what could they do about it? They couldn't go and talk to him. No one talked to the king except for those three closest friends. And anyway, what would they say? There was only one solution and that was to get rid of the king. Well, the army were in luck, because the king had fallen ill with a fever. So the army came up, and they kindly covered him in blankets, and then, with rather less kindness, they sat on top of the blankets, and the king suffocated and died. Well, today we've had some fine stories. But... What's the historical truth behind them? Well, some of the stories seem to be pure fantasy. I've always thought the tale of Kanishka's death sounds very suspicious, and in fact Kanishka seems to have been alive well after his journey to the north, which make them sound even worse. Surprisingly though, some of the stories are quite plausible, at least if you take out the more fantastic details. The story that Kanishka invaded the Satavahana lands rings true. The Satavahana kingdom was in full retreat. Kanishka might well have taken the chance to invade them. He did invade a little bit further south to Ajen. Why not take the extra step? And even if Kanishka didn't invade them himself, the Shaka kings of the time certainly did invade them. And the Shaka kings may well have been under Kanishka's power. They may well have been uh, kshatraps, regional governors in the proper sense, under the cushions during this period. Whether all of this invasion was due to an inappropriate cloth given to the Queen, I'll leave for you to guess. Or what about the poet monk Ashvagosha? Well, he's certainly a real figure. 
he was very important in Buddhism. And the thing he did for Buddhism was rewrite all of the Buddhist scriptures and make them into Sanskrit. Previously, they'd been in Prakrit, and he translated them with his poet sensibilities into this very elegant Sanskrit, being guided by a, a, a college of Buddhist monks, taking into account all of the nuances of the originals. He was the perfect person to do it. After all, he was a great debater and a monk and a poet. And the story of Kanishka wrestling with his conscience there on the bloodied ground of Parthia. Well, the stories say that Kanishka became a Buddhist right there. And there's firm history to back those stories up. Because at the beginning of his reign, Kanishka's coin, coins feature the, the same gods as the coins that the other Kushan coins did. Iranian gods um, and some uh, Brahminical gods. But at some point in Kanishka's life, this stops. And in later times, on the back of every single coin Kanishka issued is one figure with the name Bodo, the Buddha. So Kanishka seems to have converted to Buddhism at some point in his life. And there's much more evidence uh, for the conversion to Buddhism than merely the coins. In fact, the difference between the early Kanishka and the later Buddhist Kanishka is so stark that many historians think that they're two separate kings. But all of this, Kanishka's conversion to Buddhism and how he acted it out, that is a story for another episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. And in fact, during Kanishka's time, there was a kind of revival of great literature. There's loads of great literature being written in Kanishka's time. But we really can't do better than hearing something from the moralising monk himself. The monk worth 300,000 gold pieces. The man who can persuade a hungry horse not to eat. The moraliser who failed to convince a king, Ashvagosha himself. There are two things that Ashvagosha wrote that have come down to us. There's a story of the life of Buddha and there's also a story of the life of Nanda, who's uh, Buddha's half-brother. Let's take a bit from the life of Buddha. And in this bit, uh, David Dutta, the bad boy of Buddhism, is starting to kick off. David Dutta was the Buddha's brother-in-law. The Buddha's been converting people and David Dutta's about to try and throw a spanner in the works. It goes something like this. At this time, Devadatta, seeing the remarkable excellences of Buddha, conceived in his heart a jealous hatred. Losing all power of thoughtful abstraction, he ever plotted wicked schemes to put a stop to the spread of the true law. Ascending a mount, he rolled down a stone to hit the Buddha, but the stone divided into two parts, each passing on either side of him. Again, on the royal highway, Devadatta loosened a drunken, vicious elephant. With his raised trunk trumpeting and thunder, he ran, his maddened breath raising a cloud around him, his wild pace like the rushing wind to be avoided more than the fiercest tempest, his trunk and tusks and tail and feet, when touched only, brought instant death. Thus he run through the streets and the ways of Rajagriha, madly wounding and killing people. Their corpses lay across the road, their brains and blood scattered afar. Then all the men and the women were filled with fear, remained indoors. 
Throughout the city there was universal terror. Only piteous shrieks and cries were heard. Beyond the city, men were running fast, hiding themselves in holes and dens. Tagata, with 500 followers at this time, came towards the city. From tops of gates and every window, men, fearing for Buddha, begged him not to advance. Tagata, his heart composed and quiet, with perfect self-possession, thinking only on the sorrow caused by hate, his loving heart desiring to appease it, following, followed by guardian angel nagas, uh, snakes, slowly approached the maddened elephant. All of the monks deserted him. Ananda only remained by his side, joined by every tie of duty. His steadfast nature did not shake or quail. The drunken elephant, savage and spiteful, beholding Buddha, came to himself at once and bending, worshipped at his feet just as a mighty mountain falls to earth. With lotus hand, the master pats his head, even as the moon lights up a flying cloud. And now, as he lay crouched beneath, crouched before the master's feet, on his account he speaks some sacred words. The elephant cannot hurt the mighty dragon. Hard it is to fight with such a one. The elephant desiring so to do will in the end obtain no happy state of birth. Deceived by lust, anger and delusion, which are hard to conquer, but which the Buddha has conquered. Now then, this very day, give up this lust, this anger and delusion. You, swallowed up in sorrow's mud, if not now given up, they will increase yet more and grow. Well, the elephant, hearing the Buddha's sermon, escaped from drunkenness. Rejoiced in his heart, his mind and his body both found rest, as one athirst finds joy who drinks of heavenly dew. The elephant being thus converted, the people around were filled with joy. They all raised a cry of wonder at the miracle and brought their offerings of every kind. The scarcely good arrived at middle virtue, the middling good passed to a higher grade, the unbelieving now became believers, those who believed were strengthened in their faith. The mighty king, Ajatasatru, seeing how Buddha conquered the drunken elephant, was moved at heart by thoughts profound. Then, filled with joy, he found a twofold growth of piety. The Buddha, by exercise of virtue, exhibited all kinds of spiritual powers. Thus he subdued and harmonised the minds of all and caused them in due order to attain religious truth. And through the kingdom, virtuous seeds were sown, and as at first when men began to live, as at the first when men began to live. But Devadatta, mad with rage because he was ensnared by his own wickedness, at first by power miraculous able to fly now fallen, dwells in the lowest hell. Thank you very much indeed for listening. The, uh, the extract today was from Ashwagosha's Life of the Buddha, translated by Samuel Beale. It's an old edition. If you've been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Have a great week. Take care. <laughs>